Tamari, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, that is Monday, the 25th of July. Coming up today, monkeypox, monkeypox, monkeypox. Talk of inflation and jib and petrol prices can take a backseat for the day. Uh, we're going to talk about the pox that the World Health Organization has declared a health emergency. Going to be speaking with Michael Baker here in New Zealand, and you're going to hear about monkeypox worldwide. The Minister of Fruit and Veggies is here with your five plus a day for the week. It's a really interesting new fruit too. And we speak to a vaccinologist who says people need to prepare for an onslaught of not just COVID but other infectious diseases. What the viruses can do is also make you more susceptible to some of those really nasty bacterial infections. The pneumococcal disease is one, meningococcal disease is another. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarity. Hope your weekend was a successful one. I know in Auckland City this morning, Tafari was blown away out there, and uh, we've got a big old week of weather happening in New Zealand. So, uh, again, clean out the guttering. Here we go, and just batten down. Let's hope we uh, survive this one as we come through. Uh, let's go to the Northern Hemisphere to start the show today. Russia has admitted that it was behind an attack on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. The attack came only a day after an agreement between Russia and Ukraine, which would allow a resumption of grain exports from the port. The BBC's Paul Adams reports from Kiev. Vessel uh, sending it to the bottom of the sea uh, and uh, a depot housing US supplied harpoon anti ship missiles. In other words, military targets. Now, the Ukrainians have not uh, confirmed or denied uh, that military targets were hit. And this does perhaps matter because the Russians could argue, they haven't so far, but they could, that there's nothing in the agreement that they signed in Istanbul on Friday that stops them from conducting military operations even inside the port of Odessa. The text of that agreement says, and I quote, the parties will not undertake any attacks against merchant vessels and other civilian vessels and port facilities engaged in this initiative. In other words, engaged in the process of exporting Ukraine's grain. Moscow could argue, that's not what we were hitting, that's not what this is about, what are you complaining about? And I think, crucially, it raises a whole new element of risk to what was already a highly complicated and potentially hazardous operation with merchant ships needing to be persuaded that there are safe channels, that they won't be running into mines at sea, that the inspection process has all been properly organised and all of that uh, complicated business that needed to be sorted out. Now they're going to worry about whether or not they're going to be entering a port in which there are active military operations underway. That's clearly going to raise all sorts of questions and uh, potentially delay this significantly, significantly. And for the Ukraine, which needs the cash, and the United Nations, which needs the grain, that's really unacceptable. That was Paul Adams with that report. It is nine past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National uh, with me, Nathan Rarity. What did you think of motorway protesters clogging up the motorways uh, in Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch? Do you think they made a point? I don't know what the point was. Did you understand what the point was? Let us know too, 101. Well, the World Health Organization has declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. This decision comes as cases of the viral disease have been rising around the world. CNN's Cole Higgins has the latest. The outbreak has continued to grow. 
The World Health Organization announcing Saturday morning that the monkeypox outbreak is now a public health emergency of international concern. It's the highest alert level the WHO can declare, and it means that monkeypox has spread to the point where a coordinated international response may be required. The declaration comes after the WHO's second emergency committee on the issue on Thursday. This is an outbreak that's concentrated among men who have sex with men. That means that this is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies in the right groups. Strategies like vaccinating vulnerable communities. As of Friday afternoon, the U.S. government has shipped nearly 300,000 monkeypox vaccines to states across the country and to U.S. territories building on the 191,000 doses that were already available to states as of Wednesday. More people are becoming aware and nervous about it, trying to get vaccines. Right now, there are more than 16,800 probable or confirmed monkeypox cases reported in 74 countries, according to data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The U.S. is reporting more than 2,800 probable or confirmed cases in 46 states and jurisdictions. And the CDC has now identified two cases of monkeypox in children in the U.S. Because the virus can spread through contact with body fluids, respiratory droplets, skin-to-skin contact, and the touching of bedding or clothes. Anyone is at risk of contracting the disease. Uh, we'll be uh, uh, covering monkeypox a lot uh, on the program today here in the show. In fact, we'll go to Pakistan right now where COVID-19 numbers are on the rise again. We've got uh, the monkeypox virus there too spreading in neighbouring India. I asked our correspondent Kasvar Klazra in Pakistan uh, about the rising cases of COVID there. Unfortunately, Pakistan has reported three deaths in the last 24 hours by novel coronavirus, and 532 new cases have been reported across Pakistan. And uh, uh, the situation is that, according to Pakistan's Ministry of Health, the death toll from coronavirus unfortunately continues to increase. The rate of coronapositive cases is still 2.74 percent in the last 24 hours, but uh, according to health ministry, it tends to increase. And uh, sadly, despite clear orders from the government of Pakistan, opposition parties are holding big rallies across Pakistan. And that is perhaps the fact that uh, it is uh, acting as catalyst for spread of coronavirus across the country. That is sad. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, if we jump across now to Sri Lanka, I know we all saw the protests there, but Sri Lanka has um, elected a new president. Tell us, who is this? And I hear they've got quite busy in their first week. Yes, you have rightly pointed out. Uh, Sri Lanka has elected new president. In fact, the parliamentarians have elected a new uh, you know, uh, president of Sri Lanka, Mr. Vikor Masinghe, a very uh, honourable and uh, seasoned politician of Sri Lanka. And uh, the good thing is that the, his government is going to reopen the presidential complex tomorrow from 25 of this, uh, this month, 25 of, of July. This is very good news for the islanders as well. But let me tell you, uh, still, uh, the, uh, uh, the protest continues across Sri Lanka. And uh, we have seen... We, we have seen uh, a huge number of people protesting against inflation and non-availability of the fuels as well. But uh, uh, I, I must tell you very clearly that after taking charge as the president of Sri Lanka, a military operation was uh, 
you know, ordered by the new president. And uh, now the protesters have been flushed out from across uh, the complex. That is really a good news. And now I think the country is now heading towards a normal life very soon. That's good to hear. Um, we're talking a lot about monkeypox this morning uh, on the program. I see it spreading in India. Can you tell us there how many have tested positive? Well, uh, yes, unfortunately, monkeypox is taking toll on uh, South Asian nation, I mean India. And 34 years old from Indian capital, New Delhi, is the latest person uh, in the country to test positive for monkeypox, making it the fourth case, third case in South Asian nation. And the good news is an emergency meeting of uh, the health officials were called in Indian capital today. And an emergency has been imposed in the big cities, uh, hospitals across India. And that is really good news. Uh, But let me tell you that monkeypox were detected in Indian national that who had no history of foreign travel. That is really interesting. Three cases of monkeypox were previously reported from the southern Indian state of Kerala. So the toll has increased to the fore. It's our correspondent Kasvar Klazra there who joins us from Pakistan. It is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radadi. Well, it's been a sharp rise in the number of drownings uh, since the emergence of COVID-19. That's here and around the world. So there are an average of 77 fatal drownings in Aotearoa every year. Uh, which is why groups like Drowning Prevention Auckland have joined the World Health Organisation in calling for you to get behind World Drowning Prevention Day. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is today, the 25th of July. Joining me now is the Chief Executive of Drowning Prevention Auckland. It's Nicola Keen-Bigler. Kia ora, Nicola. Kia ora, Nathan. Why, um, what's, what's theorised as why there's more drownings that have uh, been hitting since COVID arrived? There's a the number of factors. I think with warmer water over the past summer, we've definitely noticed more people visiting beaches, uh, going out on their boats, playing with new toys such as paddle boards and kayaks. Yet we've also seen more people get into strife and they're um, underestimating uh, the risks that they're encountering and they're overestimating their current level of fitness, which I think is an impact of COVID. Um, yeah. So it's great to have a day like this to raise awareness. Yeah, it's interesting that fitness one isn't there as well. I mean, how does New Zealand compare to other countries? I mean, considering we're completely surrounded by water. Our drowning rate is actually relatively high. We've definitely got uh, something to do as a country. We are surrounded by water, as you say, and uh, also in Auckland, 40% of our residents were not born in New Zealand and may have come from landlocked countries and never been around water before. So education really is vital to ensure that people understand how to keep themselves safe. Yeah. I mean, Nicola, can you tell us, I mean, your personal experiences, uh, your experience with drownings? Uh, Yes, I can. So when my daughter was five and we were waiting for swimming lessons, we were at a public pool with stairs down into the pool. Uh, I got distracted by my newborn in a capsule next to me and I turned around to see that she'd stepped off the bottom step and she literally sunk. It was the quietest, quickest experience. And by the time that I realised that actually she wasn't playing, that she was actually in trouble, uh, it was her father next to me that said, is she okay? And that spurred me into action. So thankfully my husband was in the water with another daughter of mine and was able to scoop her up and she threw up, which cleared her airways. 
Uh, but gosh, I was very, very close to being one of the statistics that we are commemorating today. We really want to remember the human humanness of this cause, the fact that these are uh, people that families absolutely adore and miss desperately. And, uh, you know, this is a preventable death. Because um, I know that, yeah, you know, look, when when it's on TV, it looks like this big thrashing around and waving and how, but that's that's just not the way it happens at all, is it, Nicola? Like you say, silent, very, very quickly under too. Oh, absolutely. I think that's what uh, scared me significantly was that there was no flailing arms, there was no gasping for air. She literally sank. Hmm. So, you know, one of the key messages today really is to actively supervise your children. While I was supervising, it wasn't active, I was distracted, I wasn't able to reach her. And I'm just very fortunate that I'm uh, not one of the statistics we're talking yeah. about today. So can, so uh, for listeners here, how, how can we help to stop preventable drownings? I would love your listeners to accept and engage in the fact that water safety education is a lifelong journey. This does not finish when our swimming lessons finish. Uh, We are engaging with water throughout our life and our fitness changes, uh, the way that we engage in the water changes. We really need to accept and commit to uh, learning throughout the lifespan and you can do that in a number of ways. We have a free e-learning platform that you could engage in today. Uh, there's a number of wonderful organisations across Aotearoa that uh, do teach adults how to swim. They do teach different activities on the water and how to do those safely. Uh, so that would be uh, something I would encourage people to consider and, and adopt. Yeah. Well, Nicola, thank you very much for your time. Uh, there we are, everybody. Uh, Nicola Keen Bigelow there of uh, Drowning Prevention Auckland. And like she said, yeah, the fitness term, remember, I think uh, most of it happens as well, uh, where people are getting washed off rocks when they're, they're either walking around, taking a bit of an adventure to get around a cove and, you know, see what's around that headland there, or uh, particularly fishing in that as well, and not wearing life jackets on the way. Remember, then waves, they'll come up real quick and grab you. So, uh, yeah, please uh, educate yourself and those that you love all that you can. It's 19 past five of Nathan Rarere. You're with First Up here on RNZ National. Still to come, we're here with Auckland mayoral candidates thought of Saturday's motorway blocking protesters and you're going to find out who played the saxophone part of Keyless Whisper. Thank you. I have lost a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in the rear. Big ones, small ones, some as big as head. Let's go to the fresh produce markets where the Minister of Fruit and Veg, Glenn Forsyth, awaits us. Kia ora, Glenn. Morning, Nathan. How are you, buddy? Well, I'm good. It's, it's cold and it's windy. It's not tropical. However, <laughs> it is the time. This is the tropical fruit's time to shine on our shelves. Tell us what's there, Glenn. Yeah, well, it is always a safe bet to talk about tropical fruit in our winter, and that is imported tropical beauties. And New Zealand is active here. We have five major importers bringing in these goods. National sales manager Aaron Leslie from Seeker, he's one of them, and they bring in plenty of bananas, pineapples, and papaya on weekly and fortnightly shipments from Ecuador and the Philippines. They both arrived on Saturday, and after a few days of ripening, we'll have great volumes again midweek. And now cost of shipping, fuel and cardboard have all gone up. And what used to be a, a seeding price of two ninety nine a kilo for bananas here is now up to three thirty a kilo. I love the Panama bananas, which we got a lot from the early 90s when Chiquita came onto the scene. However, the Ecuador, Ecuadorian ones are also very nice. Now, New Zealand is one of the biggest eaters of bananas per capita, which is about 18 kilos per person per year. So that's two bananas each per week. And now pineapples, I prefer the Philippine one. 
quicker transit time, and they arrive more often than the tropical gold, for example. You know, that's lovely and sweet. And the papaya, they're loaded with high levels of antioxidants, vitamins A, C, and E. So a regular fresh fruit salad of these three imported tropical gems sounds just the ticket, Nathan. It does. Now, there's a controversial uh, element you want to talk about today. Now, I know yes. that cor- coriander is one of those ones that some people either love or they go, no, it tastes like soap. And, um, boy, uh, I don't think Katrina's a big fan of uh, f- uh, vegetables that taste like licorice. Tell us about fennel bulbs. Oh, look, oh yeah, it, it is, it's right up there, isn't it? Um, so vegetables, for those... Just firstly, for those that are a fan of radish, there were good supplies of these at the market, and also the robust celery was arriving in waves. This would be our pick of the week for greens. Don't waste the leaves either. Be mindful of their stronger flavour with celery, but there are many dishes you can put them into, you know, soups, stir-fries, and stews, just to name just a few. Orange kuma is still good wine, and sour pumpkin or the sweeter butternut, and there's no fruit shortage here on our onions, carrots, and mushrooms, plenty of these too. But uh, one vegetable doing okay in this cold, and New Zealand has several growers, would you believe, who grow these throughout the country, is the fennel bulb, as you've said. Alan Fong, who grows a lot in Pukekohe, he enjoys slicing and dicing the, uh, the bulb into a stir-fry. Uh, Sue, a foodie from the Takapuna Markets, she simply roasts the delicate bulb in with the rest of the veggies with a little garlic and lemon juice. She also uses the stalks like celery and soups and stocks, and she saves the, the fronds, the soft, firm part, as garnish. Yeah, so fennel has an aniseed flavour, as you've mentioned, and aroma. It is increasing in popularity, however, and its flavours complement courgettes, carrots, beans and cabbage, according to Vegetables New Zealand. So, yeah, maybe maybe try them. Baby steps. Yes, we want Now, 2101 is our number to text to. Audience, 2101. There are so many look, kitchen wizards out there, please. Fennel. Yeah. Give us some fennel ideas and maybe see if you can change Katrina's mind. 2101, there we go. Um, now, fruit-wise, there's a couple of ones you wanted to talk about. One is just, oh, I just adore passion fruit forever. The other one, the cherimoya, yep. I had to Google it and I went, oh, is that what that thing is called? Tell us about a cherimoya. Oh, we've got some interesting stuff with fruit today. I mean, some fruits this morning taking up their fair share of real estate at the markets were oranges, green kiwi fruit, new season avocados, and a new shipment of pack and pears from Australia. And we did have our own subtropicals on offer, but these were very limited, like passion fruit, dragon fruit, tamarillos, and cherimoya. I mean, a bit of nice history on tamarillos. They were introduced here from Asia in the late 1800s, an Auckland nurseryman developed a red one by 1930 and during World War II, demand for the high in vitamins fruit grew. And now the tree tomato was from South America, but the, the name now is not Spanish. So former New Zealand Tree Tomato Promotions Council member W. Thompson, he came up with the tamo, uh, tama and rillo in, in the late 60s, claiming it sounds both Māori and Spanish. Now finishing on cherimoya, I remember selling this fruit at the Wellington Markets in the mid-90s, we used to call it ice cream fruit. We would cut the soft and light browning ripe ones in half and just scoop out the flesh with a spoon and eat it like a small tub of ice cream. They were delicious. Um, you know, and and the seed, uh, avoid the seeds though, Nathan. They are toxic and they'll crush, they will crack your teeth. So yeah, if you do happen to find one, give it, give it a try. We will. Thank you very much. There is the Minister of Fruit and Veg here, Passion Fruit and Cherry Moya. Interesting ones. Avoid the seeds. Five 
like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the day of our life, we call the 25th of July. On this day in 1965, Bob Dylan was booed by sections of the crowd at the Newport Folk Festival. Why? Uh, performed with an electric guitar. Um, however, there's varying reasons as to why this happened. First off, Pete Seeger, uh, he said at the time, if I had an axe, I'd cut that cable right now. Uh, there was a bit of controversy. Some people thought, oh, he's playing electric guitar, that's an insult to my ears. However, other people came out and said, no, it wasn't that at all. He only performed for 15 minutes, and he stuffed around with that guitar for so long, he had several instrument changes, he only played three songs. That was why people booed. So there we are, uh, Bob Dylan uh, controversy on this day in 1965. Now, Katrina, hit me with the... Uh Yeah. Ah, this was released in 1984 on this day. This is George Michael. I think he was wham in those days, wasn't it? Careless Whisper. He'd written the song about six years before that, and his mate had played it in a bar, the, the saxophone bit, and George went, Love it! I'm going to use that in a song one day. And he did, and then they recorded Careless Whisper, and they kept bringing in all these sax- saxophonists to play, and George would go, No, not you. Get out. No, not you. And they brought in all the best of the best of the best. They couldn't find them. They used eight different saxophone players before they settled on Steve Gregory, who was the person that plays this. Now, Steve Gregory had played... He plays the saxophones on Rolling Stone's Honky Tonk Women. Uh, He played on many different songs. And finally, uh, George Michael went, yes, because it's got that guttural. And I've heard some of the other recordings, and you're right, they just sound too proper. They sound too proper. They're not quite right. So there you are. Uh, and that saxophone is uh, its one of the greatest hooks of the of the 80s, I think you'll find. On this day in 1999, American Lance Armstrong cheated his way to the first of seven uh, consecutive Tour de France chi- titles that he cheated to win. Way to go, Lance. He had a dream. And he got that dream. Uh, and on this day in 2000, very sad day, a Concorde supersonic airplane, remember the Concorde? It crashed outside Paris, killing all 109 people on board, four others on the ground, and the event was believed to be what hastened the end of the Concorde operations three years later. And that is uh, the day of our life that we like to call the 25th of July. The best things in life are free. Half past five, joining us on a, uh, a day of celebration of uh, monkeypox and Steve Gregory's saxophone playing. It's Nicholas Poynton from the Business Bank, <laughs> and also Lance Armstrong. Yeah, the cheating. Like, I can't help but think he's probably the most famous cheater of all time. He is. There was a sprinter called Ben Johnson who finally oh, yes. is like, "Phew, what about that guy?" guy. <laughs> I was just coked to the eyeballs are and you, taking this are stuff. You all right? It is so cold in here this morning. It I feel is. like I've slept inside the fridge. It, thank you. <laughs> It is cold. Thank you very much. Hey, um, now this is a, a good thing when I see that price, uh, that pay is going up. I think is a, is a good thing. Um, eight out of ten trucking companies lifting pay. That's great. That it sounds good, but I'll let the public decide if is it as good as it's made to see. This is the trucking industry putting out these figures, so they've kind of got a vested interest here of making themselves look good. But mm. look, with that in mind, eight, eight, they say, as you mentioned, eight out of ten trucking companies have reported increasing pay for their drivers over the past year. Their survey shows that 55% of road transport companies had increased staff by at least 6% in the past year, which is pretty good. That sort of suggests that maybe some people are getting paid above the rate of inflation. But I guess I sort of raise questions about what about that sort of 
that other half. That means effectively people have gotten poorer in the past year. And we can't just sig- signal out the transport companies or the trucking companies for this. Mm. But we're seeing it right across large parts of the economy that people are raising wages to try and compete for staff but in many cases it is not keeping pace with the rate of inflation and that's when people are going to uh, begin to feel you know a hole in their pockets where their money their dollar isn't worth what it was a year ago um, looking around at some of the other figures they put out they say that about uh, 44% of transport operations said that they were paying staff between 21 and 25 dollars an hour in 2020 now that's shrunk down just to 6% are getting paid that much. I'm sure that people working those jobs, getting paid that much, wouldn't be happy with that. Mm. Probably looking at this report, you'd probably be, they'd probably be thinking, well, if people are getting 6 and 7% pay rises, maybe I should try and ask for the same. But look, largely... There are encouraging signs in this report. You've got to kind of give it to the trucking industry to say that, yes, they have stepped up. They, they are paying people more. It is a critical piece of um, the economy, you know, moving things from A to B. So it's good to see that pay is moving up. But you would just like to see that it's keeping right with the with keeping pace with the rate of inflation or keeping close to it. You'd like to see that 55% figure maybe trending up towards 70, maybe in a year's time. Right. And just very quickly, give me a minute on uh, the cruise industry. I wondered if people would want to go on those again but apparently they do yeah those People big sort of yeah look they can be a real hive of COVID and things like that but that hasn't you know we saw it in the early stage of the pandemic but end of the month borders are opening cruise industry hard hit past two years saying that uh, port calls for this year for the end of the year you know our busy summer season about 900 port calls that will take us back to levels last seen in 2017 mm. the industry says hey look that's better than anyone I was expecting. We'll take that. Uh, if, if the Northern Hemisphere is anything to go by, been you know huge tourist numbers over there. Operators have been really overwhelmed. So encouraging signs for the tourism sector. Uh, we're going to look to do some more stories with this border opening soon about just how prepared some people are because the Northern Hemisphere they've been absolutely slammed. You've seen flights being cancelled, yeah. airports crowded, and that's summer, and that's supposed to be the low period for them. Yeah, well, you know that's going to be. It's going to be really interesting. So we're going to have to wait and see. But yeah, cruise season, cruise industry looking quite good at the moment. Yeah, thank you very much. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Do you want to go on a cruise? 2101. Would you do the cruise things? And if actually, no, no, let's if you would like to go on a cruise, why do you want to go on? 2101, where would you hope to go to and what do you love about them? There we are. Uh, your money markets look like this. New Zealand dollar is out there shopping and it is buying things. It buys 62.52 US cents, 90.24 Australian cents, 61.20 euro cents, 52.07 British pence, 4.22 yuan, 85.06 Japanese yen, and 142.16 Pakistani. Rupees. Barry Guys with Morena. me from the sports department. Morena, Barry. Well, I would go on a cruise because you'd you only have to go probably 15 metres to get something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yes! And okay, you don't have go. to pack and unpack, and you get to see everything. And yeah, 
I, bit of shuffleboard. I've always wanted to do a holiday where I just lay around and did nothing. I don't think I've ever done that. So, okay, there we go. Like yeah. that's these are all wonderful reasons. Here we are. I'm, I can see it now. Yeah. Um, boy, so uh, talk to us about the All Black coaching situation. There was many thoughts last week. I know someone threw out a speculative piece on the Otago Daily Times, and everyone picked yeah. that up. Uh, however, Ian Foster is still the coach. Tell us about the the replacements going on in the background because now we've got two scrum coaches. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a tumultuous week for the All Blacks, and in the end, nothing happened. Mm. Uh, and um, I think possibly the Sam Kane situation was seriously thought about, thought about, and I wouldn't be surprised if something still happens there. So uh, I won't write off the ODT just at the uh, moment. Uh, yes, Brad Moore, the backs coach, and John Plumtree, the forwards coach, uh, have both gone. And Jason Ryan from the Crusaders has come in to help the forward pack. Uh, good. Something need, needed to happen. Um, it appears that uh, the players had uh, quite a bit of involvement in this, and perhaps they felt, uh, the forwards definitely, that um, they needed something extra or a change in some way. Um, I, when it comes to this level, I do think that uh, the involvement of the coaches is just, uh, just um, well, not... It's, it's minute almost. I mean, the players have got to make all the decisions and do most of the things, but the, the coach is there to just help if there's a little piece missing, I think, in, in some way. Um, and perhaps the players felt that they weren't getting that with uh, a couple of the coaches that were there. Interesting yeah. to see Jason Wright, as I say, is from the Crusaders, works with Scott Robertson. Um, I did see that Jason said he went and talked to Scott Robertson first. Uh, before accepting, and perhaps that was to do with uh, Scott. So when you become All Blacks coach, am I still in line? Yeah, yeah, am I? Well, I get written off. So, see, because uh, yeah. the other name that was thrown around in Rumorland last week was Leon McDonald, and I thought, hang on, so what? You're just yeah. going to put in Razor's assistance that he wanted? Yeah. Yep. So that seems strange to me. Well, I mean, look, they go off to South Africa. Well, okay, let, Barry, let's let's go wild speculation. Let's say they go over there and they lose both games. One of them they get toweled up in the same way that we toweled uh, South Africa up in North Harbour. I know there's they, they said there'd be a review after that South Africa uh, part of the tour. If they come back down 0-2, no. what happens? Carry on. Carry on, it'll be the same? Yeah, um, because even a good side can lose to South Africa over there, yeah. and uh, that happened regularly. I uh, personally think that um, this is it now. They've, they've got to carry on. I, I can't see them at the end of the year making more changes, uh, or they, they should make more changes. Uh, they, they now just have to work to try and get ready for the uh, World Cup. Mm. Uh, so... Um, yeah, oh, it's interesting too because I also see a lot of players. Uh, they say, "Oh, some of these All Blacks are getting old and all of that sort of thing." The Springboks and the English and all those—they always have some old heads there. I see—is it uh, Dwayne Vermeulen's gone back into the squad yeah. or someone like that? He's about thirty-five or thirty-six. Um, right. I'm not writing players off just because apparently they're old. I mean, you need experience more so than perhaps some of these uh, young ones um, that have come in. Bring the old one in. So. Um, no, this is it. This is it. As far as I'm concerned, from now on, um, Scott McLeod looks after defence. I think the defence hasn't been too bad, really. You know, you can only defend so much when you've got 13 players on the know. field. So, yeah, yeah. very good. Okay, okay. now Thank just you. quickly, uh, the Tall oh, Blacks no, finished, finished oh, yes. third at the at the uh, Asia Cup. 
Uh, that was pretty good effort then. I think it's the first time they've been on the podium. Good uh, Tall Blacks, uh, very young Tall Black side. Lydia Coe's uh, finished tied for third at the uh, Evian Championship, the latest women's major. And our team's arrived in Birmingham for the Commonwealth Games this uh, week, so we'll be hearing plenty from them also. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Barry. Uh, Destiny Church leader Brian Tamaki led a 1,000 or so protesters on a march that caused major disruptions in Auckland on Saturday. The organisers said they wanted to cause motorway mayhem in Auckland, and they did. Well done. Uh, Auckland mayoral candidate Leo Malloy has been widely reported to be a friend of Brian Tamaki and his friend, uh, and sorry, and his wife Hannah, even appearing on a video with Brian Tamaki and the leader of Groundswell. So our producer Matthew Tunison asked what Mr Malloy made of the weekend's protest. Yeah, it's disappointing. I mean, you know, I don't agree with that sort of behaviour. I don't have any input or control or say in that area. I mean, I'm very pro-vax, as you know, so I've long time put significant distance between myself and those groups, but... It doesn't change the fact that it happened and it doesn't change the fact that it's disappointing for the city. It's It's been reported over the years that you're friends with Brian Tamaki. Is that still the case? No, that's most, not, a, not a reasonable assessment of our relationship. I'm friends with Hannah. I know Brian. I've met him half a dozen times. I've been to their house once. To say I'm friends with Brian would suggest or imply that I have some sort of unique relationship with him, which is not the case at all. But I'm certainly friends with Hannah and I admire the work that Destiny Church does for people who have fallen on hard times vulnerable people and people have fallen through the cracks in life. All right, so you are opposed to the actions that they took yesterday and to the message that they are promoting? I'm disappointed, it's the word I used, disappointed that it got to that. I thought we'd brought it to an end in December last year. Yeah. I thought we'd seen the back end of it all. But at the end of the day, life is not black or white. It's not binary and people make decisions to do certain things for certain reasons. I haven't had any discussions with them about this matter. They know that I don't approve. Um, you know, I fought hard against to stop the domain things happening. I went to the domain to stop them happening, the Auckland domain, on behalf of the New Market Business Association. And as I've said a million times, right from day one, I'm very pro-vax, I'm pro-mRNA technology. So we have a significant, how would you describe that, fissure in our relationship. Fellow mayoral candidate Viv Beck opposed the uh, protesters' tactics, but says there's a lot of concern and anger about decisions being made by central government. There is a a strong mood for change, but I think that needs to be voiced in ways that don't affect others. So do you have some sympathy with their um, dissatisfaction with the um, central government? Oh, I think there's a lot of it. I'm certainly seeing it in in the meetings I'm attending. People are concerned about the decisions being made in Wellington that are sort of being hoisted on Auckland. And I've been to enough meetings now to know that these are people in different communities expressing similar themes. So there is definitely an issue. I think it's really important that people do vote. There is a strong vote for change, I believe, but I don't uh, agree with tactics that cause so much disruption. It affected various things that I was involved with and it affected lots of people. And I think what uh, needs to happen is people, you know, people have a right to protest, but I think if they can do it in a way that doesn't um, affect so many people, that would be a lot better. Did you get stuck in traffic or...? Well, I was—I actually sort of skirted around it. I was able to do that, but I know it disrupted one of the meetings I went to and people were, were late and some couldn't get there at all. And there'll be many people affected like that. So I don't think that's good because there is actually a lot of common themes in the expression of concern across the region from the top to the bottom, <laughs> east, west. It's very, very consistent in what I'm seeing. And that needs to be addressed. But I, I think this sort of disruption is not helpful. I suppose the protesters on Saturday were uh, the Freedom and Rights Coalition, led by Brian Tamaki. Their views are 
it could be argued quite extreme on a, on, on a number of issues. So that wouldn't be representative of, you know, wider Auckland, would it? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that there is genuine expression of concern for some of the decisions being made in Wellington for Auckland. Okay. So what, that's what I'm seeing out there. So no, it's not an, at an extreme end, but it is in terms of policies that are being made that are going to affect communities across Auckland. That's what I'm seeing. We also wanted to talk with mayoral frontrunner Ephesor Collins, uh, but unfortunately we couldn't get hold of him. Okay, 17 to 6, I'm Nathan Radity. You're with First Up here on RNZ National Still to Come Monkeypox. And a reminder to keep your immunity to COVID up to date. Latest figures show that there are at least 5,500 new community cases of COVID-19 in the country. It's currently a rolling average of 8,500 cases and 24 deaths each week. But Auckland University vaccinologist Dr Helen Pertusis-Harris says that while these figures are grim, COVID's not the only disease we need to be thinking about and New Zealanders should be prepared prepared for an onslaught of more infectious diseases in the coming months. I asked her where we currently stand. How bad things. Well, things aren't good, I think, in terms of those winter ills. Of course, we've got the COVID and then we've got the influenza and then we've probably got a bunch of other things trotting along as well. So it isn't, it isn't as nice as it was the last couple of years. Oh, no, that, that's awful. And is this just really all a device of what's happened since we've, I guess, the uh, settings have come down a bit and we've opened the borders up a little? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, infectious diseases respond really well when we stay away, we wear masks and all of these other things in part, and of course the border. So all of that kept things well and truly at bay. So we've had a holiday and now it's payback. Yeah, it is. Okay, so tell me about it. I mean, one of our great protections, of course, is immunity. How is our immunity going against COVID? Population on the whole, I guess it's going pretty well because we've used a lot of vaccine, we've had a lot of natural infections. So generally, people across the population start to build up immunity, even though we've got a lot of cases. That also is goes the same for other infections as well. Yeah. So you stay immune by getting boosted all the time by coming across infections. And we haven't had a lot of that for a while. So generally speaking... We're less immune to a lot of things than we were uh, a few years ago. What about our booster rates at the moment? Because as I understand it, right, it's like a a booster is, that's now as far as it goes, like if you're fully uh, vaccinated, that's great. But we would like you very much to have the latest booster. Is Is that still the way? I think we all get a bit, well, we've confused people with terms like saying fully vaccinated and it used to mean two, two doses. It was probably never going to be two doses for long. So maybe we should say one booster or two boosters or whatever we might be up to at the time. To be honest, two doses doesn't do an awful lot against Omicron. Having that booster makes a huge difference, a huge difference. And then over time, that wanes that's when that next booster becomes useful, especially in people that are really vulnerable. makes a bigger difference if you're like older or got risk factors than it does if you're sort of a younger, healthier person. Right. So if you are in that eligible and you haven't done it yet, the best thing is to go and book, book one. Or can you, I guess you can wander into a pharmacy and hope they've got one for you. Yeah, I mean, I think there's people ready to um, and available to give you that booster. It would be a really good idea. What about, as you mentioned before, it's not just COVID that's going around. How are we doing with our rate of, uh, you know, flu vaccinations? 
Yeah, not as not, as, not that great, not oh. as well as we've done in the past. I think people got pretty excited about it 2020 because, you know, we had the, so many unknowns then. Of course, we didn't see flu. We didn't see it for a couple of years. I'm afraid it's back with a vengeance now. And so that can make a big difference. Those flu vaccines can make a big, big difference and cut back on the number of infections we see. And it's interesting, we went on holiday as a family a few years ago and when we came back, my wife picked up the flu and she ended up in hospital and it was terrible for her. And she said to me afterwards, she went, do you know what? All the times I've thought I've had the flu, I don't think I've had the flu because that was incredible. And we are hearing too that it's it's just so debilitating, this one that people have got. But there's also too some news. I know when we spoke to a doctor in Whangarei the other week, the risk of getting both COVID and flu. How do people survive that? Oh, it sounds pretty damn miserable to me. Yuck. And actually, it's not just having those viruses, but what the viruses can do is also make you more susceptible to some of those really nasty bacterial infections. The pneumococcal disease is one, meningococcal disease is another. So that's another worry because what you see when you have these, uh, particularly, say, big sort of flu outbreaks and things, you see a rise in those diseases, meningococcal disease, for example. And that's where we can also think about trying to make a difference because we could potentially get a little hammered by those. And we've got a lot of susceptible kids out there. I know that you and your cohorts there of, of workers there have been warning for a while now that, hey, when it gets to winter, this is when things tend to get bad and tend to get worse. Forecasting is, is always hard and it's hard to know. Do you think, are we tracking about where you expected things would be? Would they be maybe even worse or a little bit less worse? And do you think it will drop off a little bit once we come through winter? Well, yeah, it will drop off because, um, you know, the nature of epidemics is that they do, which is, I guess, the good news. Um, I guess the bad news is I think that it's not just going to be this winter, but I think going forward over the next few years, for all of these reasons, we are going to be paying back this sort of deficit that we've got. There is a whole chunk of it that's preventable. I mean, there's some of it we can't do an awful lot about unless we all live live like monks and nuns. But there are a lot of things that we can do. And and so I think right now, there's a lot more that we could be doing. Like like what? Increasing that mask use again through this period is undoubtedly helpful. But really looking at some of these vaccines that we've really let go is something we can do. And I think we really need to focus on that. We could have up to a third of our young kids are actually vulnerable to measles right now. Yeah, that, thank you. I was, I was actually just about to ask that because I remember there was the outbreak in West Auckland the other year which spread through and then it went up to the islands and that was horrible hearing of death tolls out there. But do you have to get like a measles booster every year? No, and it's super effective vaccine. One shot sees you right probably your whole life. Two shots a little bit is, is a bit better and that's it. It's incredibly effective. But we've built up a whole lot more new people in our population that are completely susceptible to measles. And those people, a lot of them are the most vulnerable populations. So I think we're sitting ducks for that one. There's more measles out there across the border. It's a world, a global problem. As we look here global, let's jump across the Tasman there. So children over the age six months to five years old could soon be able to roll their sleeves up for a COVID-19 vaccine. When will we see that happening here? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, obviously, that's some of the decisions that are uh, made down in Wellington, but I'd really like to see that option available for people, especially those vulnerable kids. 
That's Dr. Helen Petusis Harris there. Well, uh, look, the monkeypox outbreak has been declared a global health emergency by the World Health Organization. The classification, which is the highest alert that the WHO can issue, came after a surge in cases around the planet. More than 16,000 cases of monkeypox have now been reported from 72 countries. There's five deaths there too, unfortunately. Uh, Just two cases have been detected in New Zealand so far, but that is two cases. Joining me now is University of Otago epidemiologist Professor Michael Baker. Kia ora, Professor Baker. How are you? Morena, Nathan. Very good. Good to hear from you. Hey, um, tell us about this. The World Health Organization, they don't just go around chucking out global health emergencies willy-nilly, do they? No, this is the seventh we've had since the international health regulations were changed in 2005 to create this category. And, and of course, this is the highest level of alert that the World Health Organization has. Um, it doesn't actually declare pandemics. There isn't a legal definition of them. But this is the, the designation when they say there's actually a huge risk globally and they need to mobilise resources and really focus on the health problem. So, so what is it about monkeypox that elevates it to, you know, the need for this sort of warning? Well, they've got a lot of words they use to describe these events. Um, if it's serious, sudden, unusual, unexpected, and particularly if it carries implications for public health beyond the affected state's borders. So it's when something is spilling over from one country to another, or, or really to many countries, and that it requires immediate international action. So, but there's not the same level of concern for a wider outbreak in the community as COVID, though, is there? No, it's not at the scale. I mean, ones we've had in the past have been, there was the flu pandemic in 2009, and then polio, Ebola, Zika, um, and uh, Ebola again, and then now, of course, COVID-19 and monkeypox. Mm. Vaccines. So we've learned a lot about vaccines and their importance and uh, in, in things like this. Is there an effective vaccine against monkeypox? Yes. I mean, smallpox vaccine works well because they're related viruses. So that's uh, being used um, in some places at the moment, uh, particularly for contacts, uh, people who are at higher risk and healthcare workers. Do we, are many people in New Zealand, have, have we had our smallpox vaccines? I don't even know if I have. Yeah, you, you won't have, um, you're too young, I think. And uh, uh, it's only really people who travelled overseas from New Zealand uh, who are uh, generally in their at least 50, 60 plus who might have had the vaccine. Uh, we never had a, a mass a smallpox vaccine program in New Zealand, but some countries did. But this is this is something that it stopped when smallpox uh, became extinct. Now, if um, you know, I, I know what do we have for on the intro? Is it uh, we've got a couple of cases um, of monkeypox in New Zealand? Do we have treatments that are available, and can our health system cope if we get somewhat of an outbreak? Well. Fortunately, uh, this um, infection is easily controlled with those basic methods we've heard a lot about. That is uh, detecting cases uh, and we've got very accurate testing and then isolating them and contact tracing and uh, basically putting contacts um, into quarantine if needed. But generally that isn't sufficient. They just need to be observed to see if they're getting symptoms. So basic public health measures work very well on this virus.
Right, which, I mean, that's that's a good thing to know. And just finally, before we jump out of here, Dr. Baker, while I've got you, I mean, I, I thought that summertime in the Northern Hemisphere would be perhaps when their COVID numbers would drop, and they seem to a little bit, but now they've come roaring back. Uh, what does that say for our summer coming up? Do you think it'll be the same? It will be. Uh, and the reason is this virus is so infectious, it doesn't need winter to get around. I mean, winter helps, like all respiratory infections, people indoors more, and so it spreads more easily. But basically, it's so infectious, and new variants are winning by evading our existing immunity. So they're very happy to spread in summer. And if you look at the Southern Hemisphere, we've had our most intense waves um, in our hottest months as the virus has arrived here, or, or as the Omicron variant arrived here. Yeah. Oh, well, well, we'll all make sure to mask out. Thank you very much for your time again, sir. There is Professor Michael Baker, University of Otago epidemiologist. Um, yeah, you know, just time to brush up on it. Make sure you do, you do yourselves some um, justice there. Uh, 2101 asked about cruises before. John says, I'd love to go on a cruise ship, but there's not enough wild horses in the world to drag me on board. Another one came through here from an anonymous number. Apparently you had a cruise booked for October 2020. Obviously it didn't go, but just got confirmation they can go to Wellington, Napier and Picton on October 2023. So that's where they're cruising to. Another one, every part of Florence fennel can be used. Oh, and use carrots in casserole as well, Nathan and Glenn. Heidi Wall uh, cooked it for us in Wellington 30 years ago. Anyway, get some fennel into your life, everybody. Thank you very much for your patronage this morning. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day, and we'll be back in your ears up or